Welcome to Achieve Wealth through Value Add Real Estate Investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, into LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. This webinar was previously recorded and converted to a listening format. Now, please enjoy this timely and valuable market information from expert commercial real estate investor James Kandasamy and special guests. Hi, our webinar audience and podcast listeners. This is James Kandasamy from Achieve Investment Group. Today, we're going to have another series of our educational webinar, um, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, bring Eddie Wilson, uh, and he's going to be talking about how to make millions buying and selling businesses. And Eddie is also a, a big real estate guy, so you know I would say buying and selling businesses while doing real estate. Uh, Eddie is a friend, is a mentor, and is a very successful person. And I think all of us are going to be learning a lot of things from him. And uh, I just want to quickly introduce uh, who I am. And uh, after that, I'm going to be passing this the presentation to Eddie. So about Achieve Investment Group, which are James and Shanti, which is myself and my wife here. We are deal sponsors or syndicators focusing in Austin and San Antonio, Texas. We currently have almost uh, 0.5 billion asset under management. Um, right now, it's like around 0.3 uh, billion or 300 million because we sold quite a number of assets uh, last year at the peak of the market. We have managed up to like 4,000 units, uh, 19 apartments. We have raised almost like 80 million. Uh, this is a bit outdated number, 65 million. So we raised almost 80 million just by ourselves. Uh, um, we have around, around 1,000 units under development, around uh, 300 plus under construction right now uh, in San Antonio, Texas. And we have a three or four projects which is going through entitlement right now, which will be hopefully ready for uh, construction next year, right? When the market become better. We also vertically integrated. We also do our own asset management, construction, property management. We raise money ourselves. Uh, author of two best-selling book. Um, I don't know, uh, the, the rate book, which is very popular. We have sold almost like probably 10,000 copies. A lot of passive investors use that to get started in passive investing in commercial real estate or any other syndication. And I also launched a, a new book, uh, which is called Smarter Doctors, which is a uh, very specific for doctors. So if you're a doctor, you want to get that book. But both books are awesome books. I recommend uh, reading it. Uh, it's on Amazon. You can go and get it. Just look for my name, James Kandasamy. We also have our own Facebook group, which have almost 20,000 people. Uh, so I would, you, know, you can see a lot of me in there uh, at the same time uh, just in through LinkedIn join us through LinkedIn we have our own YouTube channel and I also have my own Instagram all under my name James Kansami so and this is our website achieveinvestmentgroup.com and there's a QR code over there that if you want to go 
uh, to our website and check us out. Uh, you're welcome to do so. So without due delay, I'm going to pass the mic to Eddie. Uh, Eddie, I'm going to make you a host and you can start share your screen. That's great. Awesome. Uh, excited to be with you guys today. And we're just going to jump right in. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of a background. Um, let me share my screen here. All right, let's make sure everyone can see my screen. And Eddie, I'll be asking questions throughout the uh, uh, webinar as well, because you know we'll also be converting this to a podcast format. Um, so you know the podcast listeners also will be enjoying it. So go ahead. Awesome, and thanks so much, James. Uh, obviously, a huge fan of James. And if you've been following James for a while, uh, I encourage you to continue to follow and if you haven't read his books, for sure, read these books. Um, I have uh, been connected to James and he said, I've been mentoring. I've been mentoring more on the business side that uh, he and Shanti and his group there in Austin. Um, but as much mentoring as I do on the business side, I think he mentors me on deal structure side. And uh, James is one of the go-to people that I know that are in my network um, when I'm looking at especially complex deal structuring. Um, he is uh, always on top of the game and I appreciate uh, everything you've done for me, James. Um, so let me just kind of jump in and give you a little bit of a brief introduction so you have context for um, what we're talking about today. So today I have a private equity firm. This private equity firm is called Collective Influence. That's what you see on the screen there. Um, we're up to about 17 assets uh, right now that we own. These are companies with employees, they're, you know, either service-based companies or product-based companies. Um, and we are constantly buying and selling. Um, but the story is a, a little bit different. This is my current partner, Andrew Cordell. These, this is the two of us. Uh, we started this private equity firm uh, about 18 months ago. Uh, and we started this uh, after I had had a massive exit in 2019. Um, so in the past, up until 2019, I had bought, sold about 86 companies um, and had managed over 6,000 employees and really had built about a portfolio of about 4,000 real estate doors. So as James said, I'm a huge uh, proponent of real estate investing. I'm a third generation real estate investor, grandfather's real estate investor, dad's a real estate investor. And I came by, honestly, as I began to make my money, I began to put that money into real estate as well. Um, but up until today, I've exited about 1.36 billion uh, in exits specific to private equity or, or companies, true like companies that have products or services, employees, so on and so forth. This does not include the real estate exits. So this is uh, primarily buying and selling of companies. Um, and so as I've been buying and selling companies, I've found some formulas that I think that everyone should be considering. Now, Many of you may say, well, I'm a real estate person. Why should I listen? Why should I care about uh, private equity? Why should I care about buying businesses? And I'll make that case today. And I'll show you that there's really three parts to our financial success and our financial structure that you should be considering. And if you want to exponentially grow uh, your real estate portfolio, you also have to have the other two uh, in order to do it well. Um, and then, so up until the pandemic, I had, had about 86 companies. I sold 76 of those. Uh, a large majority of this uh, dollar amount came as exits in 2019. Um, I sold 76 companies in one calendar year. 
uh, in tranches. So I was selling five or six or eight at a time to private equity firms. The largest of those was a large insurance company uh, called National Real Estate uh, Insurance Group, NREG, uh, which many of you might know if you have single family investment properties, because we were the largest single family investor uh, insurance group uh, in the nation. Um, and we built that from about 2013 till about 2019 when, when I exited. Um, but I, I think one of the most interesting things that I have going on right now is that it wasn't just that period of time that was successful. Now I'm actually ramping up and the speed is increasing by which I'm buying, creating, or selling businesses. Uh, in 2022 alone, um, in a 12-month period, I sold $91.5 million in assets, and I started that in February. So I actually bought, I bought or I created companies that I exited in less than 10 months uh, to the tune of $91.5 million. Um, and I'm going to explain how I do this and, and why I do this. This webinar was previously recorded and converted to a listening format. Now, please enjoy this timely and valuable market information from expert commercial real estate investor James Kandasamy and special guests. So first of all, though, I think we need to get back to kind of a baseline of how we're thinking today. Uh, I, I do have a question. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Sorry. So you said uh, you exited like 70 something companies in one calendar year, right? And what's the reason for that calendar year? What happened that year? What happened in 2019 was in 2018, I really felt like um, we had reached the peak of the market. I believe that the economy goes as the housing economy goes. I know a lot of people watch the stock market as a barometer. I always watch the housing economy. I felt like in 2019, we had hit a peak um, as I was watching kind of the contritive wave and looking at um, how the economy was responding to the, to the housing growth. And um, I just, I felt like we had hit a peak and I had a lot of private equity firms that were struggling to get yield. And so they were coming after me for my companies that were performing. Once I sold one of those companies, um, the way that I had built them, these private equity firms, it was a, it was like a, a feeding frenzy. And once I sold the big insurance company, it was like, there was really nothing that was preventing me from selling the rest of them. And I also felt like I was at the peak of the market. Uh, little did I know that I'd go from at that time, about four, over 4,000 employees down to about 40 within months of the pandemic starting. So it was, um, it was a huge, uh, win as I was able to exit at the peak uh, and also not to not have to carry the employee employment load uh, through the pandemic, um, especially with the insurance company. But that was really the kind of the genesis and then the zenith of what happened um, in 2019 it was really I decided I would sell the insurance company because it was at the peak. And then the rest of them kind of went with it. And why do you think in uh, 2022 that you have been so active? And why do you think now is a good time as well for this? Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into that in the presentation okay. Okay. shortly because I want to make a case as to why everyone should consider um, this as a methodology. Um, right now, there, there's a perfect storm brewing, and uh, I'll explain that here in just a second. As we, um, as we get like, down that path, though, I want to go back, and there's, um, there's a mindset that exists in investors today, and we're so bombarded by national media that it, it gets us to a place where we're acting outside of what we normally would act because we're so uh, impressionable. 
And so I want to ask you the question because I want to build a case for why you should consider private equity if you're already in real estate. Um, because it, to me, there's there's one of two mindsets you're in. You're either in the investor mindset or you're in the consumer mindset. And and I'll I'll prove that to you. Think about it today as you look at the marketplace. Are you looking at the marketplace with fear and you're looking at it with all the liabilities or are you looking for the opportunities? Think about, you know, your, your daily activity. Are you, are you reading the news and thinking about is the housing market going to crash? You know, we used to have, uh, you know, um, less than two months worth of inventory on the market. Now we're up to, you know, in real estate, now we're up to 2.8 months of inventory on the market. It's slowing down. Our appreciation is starting to slow a little. Um, lending is difficult. Are you looking at the marketplace through the lens of liability or are you specifically looking for the opportunities that are presenting itself? And I'll tell you, as an investor, I, I never look at the downturn or potential downturns as um, something that's going to cause me a liability. I'm always looking for the opportunity. Let me give you um, a stat real quick. I've been through uh, three economic downturns in my investing career. I started uh, in my early, early 20s, 21 years old um, with investing in real estate. And my, my CFO, Dave, just the other day told me that every downturn, the three that I've gone through, uh, which the first one was really the dot-com crash, um, I have doubled my net worth every time in the downturn. And that's because the greatest opportunities come when everyone else is running out. So are you one that's running out, or are you sitting here uh, ready with the intent of, of finding the opportunity? The second thing is, is are you investing specifically on the ROIs you desire, return on investments, or are you investing to try to create cash for safety? A lot of my friends have moved to these investments that they're only investing that provide a heavy amount of cash return versus a true ROI because they want that cash because it provides a little more safety for them. For me, investing is not about tomorrow. Investing is about next year. It's about two years, about three years down the road. Number three, are you accumulating assets or are you accumulating cash? It doesn't matter what the market throws at you. Our goal should, to, should always be to accumulate assets. When you're accumulating cash, it be, should be for the purpose of finding the opportunity to accumulate more assets. You know, I love, you know, James, what you guys have done over the last uh, year or so by divesting of some of the assets you have. But the strategy that you have is to essentially divest of some of those assets to accumulate cash to essentially go out and get bigger and greater assets. You know, at the end of uh, the day, assets have so much more value. They have tax value, they have appreciation value, they have long term legacy value um, than cash does. Cash is diminishing. And so if you're accumulating cash, you're still in that. A concept of the consumer, if the purpose or the motive behind that isn't to continue to accumulate more assets, um, are you generating? And then the last point is, are you generating cash for acquisitions or are you thinking about generating cash for savings? Um, if you've got the rainy day mentality, you have been to some degree duped by the national media that um, that now is a horrible time to be putting capital into the marketplace. And, and I'll show you why here in just a second. And one thing that, you know, is fascinating to me, I got into a, a, a large Twitter uh, argument with a lady from the New York Times because she said this statement. She said Warren Buffett is sitting on $180 billion, um, which he's actually now started to purchase. I think he's on, uh, he has about $160 billion in cash or liquid today. But 
uh, at the time that she wrote that, when I was taking her on on Twitter, she said he's sitting on $180 billion in cash because he's scared of the economic marketplace. Uh, you could find it on Twitter. But my reply to her was, um, what human being with $180 billion in cash is scared of anything, right? Like, if, if you have $180 billion in cash, there's very few things you're going to be you're going to be afraid of in in this life. Maybe death, you know, maybe a lack of health, but you're not afraid of the economic marketplace. You have 180 billion dollars in cash, and I went on to say you must have never watched Warren Buffett over the last 60 years. If he's accumulating cash, it's for the purpose of doubling his net worth. In 2009 and 2010, he was sitting on about 40 billion in liquid cash um, when uh, you know a lot of uh, us were licking our wounds over some of the real estate deals that we had uh, gone wrong. He had accumulated cash at the perfect time, and he turned that into $80 billion in net worth in less than two short years. By 2012, it was estimated that he was worth $80 billion. He took his 40 and turned it into 80. What do you think he's going to do with this 180 right now? Um, we know that statistically, it's it's impossible to get uh, $2 billion status. This is what Warren Buffett actually said at one of his, um, uh, his shareholder meetings. He said, it's statistically impossible to get to a billion dollar status. He said, if you think about it, he said, the winds of change, taxes, the government, um, diminishing uh, investment opportunities for greater return. He said, it's statistically, he said, if you have a million, it's statistically impossible to turn it into a billion because so few people do it. This guy has made a career on turning billions into more billions, and I don't think that he's afraid of the of the marketplace. He is accumulating cash for the purpose of increasing his net worth. What mindset is he in? He's in the investor mindset. So as I kind of jump through this and jump into private equity, let me explain to you why, because this is my methodology, is that real estate for me, while it does provide some active income, I look at real estate as my passive income bucket. I look at my companies that are generating active income as one third of the financial puzzle. To the degree that I can create more active income, I can offset it. I can offset the taxation or the tax burden through passive income. And then that passive income is almost always in the form of real estate for me. Um, the reason I have 4,000 doors is because I've generated so much active income in the companies that I'm, I'm you know, creating, buying, leveraging, um, that I can play my passive income game at such a higher level. So many people make this mistake. They jump directly into real estate and their active income has to be, has to be created by um, real estate. Then their passive income has to be created by real estate. And then lastly, legacy and endowment. What I do is I take all my active income. That's my private equity stuff. The things that I'm in, actively involved in. These are companies uh, like we have right now, like Think Realty, which is a big real estate media platform. Uh, I own the American Association of Private Lenders, the AAPL. That's active income. Uh, Money is. I uh, own a large fitness convention called FitCon. Uh, we have the Aspire Tour that we're putting on. All of those are active. That's all active income. I'm taking all of that active income annually and I'm dumping it into passive income streams like multifamily, uh, hospitality, some single family, some single family new builds, some multifamily new builds. Um, and I'm dumping it over there where it is going to yield annually pa more passive income. Then I move all that passive income to what I call legacy or endowment. And so 
Um, I use different structures like infinite banking and others to, to hold uh, onto that. But um, that then creates a consistent stream of passive income that moves into what I'm really pa passionate about, which is feeding orphans around the world and orphanages and so on and so forth. And so for me, this is the cycle of my money. So when I look at this, I realize that the more active income I can create in the end, the more passive income I can create. And so, you know, I have young guys talk to me all the time and they say, should I quit my W-2 job and go 100% into real estate? And I always talk about this. You have to have the, you have to have the engine started. If you're not generating enough passive income in real estate uh, to support your lifestyle and give you some additional capital, or maybe there's leverage in that passive income that can create more passive income, then I say, no, I say, working on that active income as long as you can. Now, a lot of real estate investors have moved completely from no active income to a lot of passive income. And then they go back and they go, oh, well, now I have to add a wholesaling element or I have to uh, fix and flip a few houses a year for more active income. I have learned that private equity is such a greater source of active income than real estate. However, real estate is the greatest vehicle for passive income because it provides me tax strategies and consistency over time. Um, so this is my model, and this is the model that I constantly work uh, annually uh, for, for myself. Let me make the case for why private equity now. Um, right now, there is from 2020 to 2022, that's where we have numbers up to, this is um, the end of 2022, mid-2022 to the end, um, is we've seen a massive, massive slowdown. And uh, in private equity, uh, purchasing uh, assets. So what this chart shows us is that there's about $1.1 trillion sitting on the sideline in private equity firms that cannot find yield and they're not buying assets. So this should tell us a story, right? On the consumer side, we see, oh man, well then the market must be ripe for, for crash. But let me show you the opposite side of this equation. The reason that there's $1.1 trillion in cash sitting on the sidelines is because they can't find assets large enough to buy. So for me, a small to mid-cap investor, when it comes to private equity, I can go buy a, and I also know what their sweet spot is. Their sweet spot is something over $100 million in enterprise value. Now, they've actually increased their buy box down to 40 or 50 million in enterprise value. The greatest part about that is, is if I architect my asset correctly, which I'll show you in just a second, I can take a company that's doing five to 10 million uh, in revenue and actually get a 40 to $50 million valuation and take that cash uh, in the sale and turn it into more passive income. Um, we did that, I showed you earlier, three times that generated 91. Uh, five or 91.7 million uh, in less than a 10 month time period. So let me just explain this. What's happening is, is the, the PE firms, these large ones that have $1.1 trillion just sitting, these are the top tier private equity firms. This represents the top, probably 60% of private equity. There's a lot more cash sitting on the, on the table than just this 1.1 trillion, but this is the top tier. They're waiting for someone to serve them an asset that's performing 
and has a valuation of over $100 million. Now I said they've lowered it down to about 40 to 50 million. So let's say their buy boxes, they'll buy anything with an EV, an enterprise value of 40 million, all the way up to hundreds of millions, billions, right? And what they're looking for is performance. And they're looking for things that still have meat on the bone, right? Like that they can actually find growth out of it by infusing capital, uh, gaining market share, um, strategic investments that align with uh, assets they already have. Um, and so that's what they're waiting on. The problem is, is that there's a massive gap between the small business owner and what these guys can actually take advantage of. Think of it this way. I call the big top tier groups, the private equity firm groups, whales. And how many minnows would it take to actually provide sustenance to a whale? It would take thousands and thousands and thousands of minnows. The problem with that is, is they don't have the infrastructure to ingest minnows. So what they need desperately right now is for people like me and other groups like myself to come in and take these minnows and grow them into mid-sized fish so that they can actually feed on it. So I can take a dental firm, for instance, that uh, has a, a baby boomer as an owner that's looking at retirement that, and by the way, this is a, a, a natural thing, um, a baby boomer who's you know 65 to 75, sometimes even 80 years old, looking at retirement that's still sitting in the chair, in the dental chair, they have no, no family to pass it on to. There's nobody in the office. He, he's been a single dentist, or maybe he's got one other dentist. They're aging out of the practice, um, and they don't know what to do with this, this dental practice, right? Like they, they need to do something with it. And what they really want is they want some sort of security in retirement. They want some sort of payout uh, for everything they've built. Um, but in the end, you can purchase, for instance, dental practices for 200 to 1000 to a $1 million. And if you bought two or three or four of those and you put those together, you put together a, a, a group of, of dentists to essentially service those, you can turn these groups into something that has an enterprise value of 40 to 50 million and they're willing to buy it. So you could invest three to 5 million, roll up some dental practices that turn into a 40 or $50 million valuation and exit in short term if you can show stabilization. People are doing this at every single level today. They're buying HVAC firms, electrical firms. Uh, they're buying dental offices, orthodontic uh, or offices. They're, they're doing this all over the country in every area. And there's a massive uh, gap here for these small tier companies that need to grow up so that the big private equity firms. So what I'm doing is I'm actually buying low tier companies and architecting their growth to a place where I can exit at 10 or 15 times their value um, with intent. So where am I getting my deal flow? I'm getting it in three areas. I'm either number one, getting it in corporate divestiture. So um, if you kind of see this, this um, chart there, what happens is, is when you look at a corporate office that right now is struggling, especially if they're publicly traded, and you've got you know the largest purchaser of small businesses in the nation right now, and has been Google uh, nationally, um, they have a bunch of these companies just sitting on their balance sheet, and a lot of big corporations do. However, their balance sheets look really rough today because of inflation, because of the market. 
And so what they're doing is, is it's actually a better choice. It's free for them to divest of it at a lower, at a, at a higher value and less time than to fit a, an appropriate path for it um, or fix it, right? So most of this uh, activity that I'm seeing right now and what we've been looking at is corporate divestiture. They've got things sitting on their balance sheet and they're using business brokers to just divest of these assets that have that they've purchased at a high value, they're willing to sell at a low value because it's better for them to get them off their balance sheet with some cash um, and not have to deal with it long term to fit it or fix it. The second thing is baby boomers retiring. This is a huge, huge opportunity. Um, baby boomers are retiring every single day and they're leaving and, and they really have one of two options. They just shut their doors, which is happening by the thousands every single day. Thousands of businesses are being closed down. Um, and most of them do not understand, a large majority of them do not understand the value they have in their business. And so they're just naturally shutting it down, uh, winding it down and walking away. And lastly, businesses with thin margins. Um, people that have multiple businesses uh, today in this marketplace are afraid of the business that they have with thin margins. And so they'll naturally sell it. It's why you're seeing a massive sell-off of, um, for those of you in the real estate space, a massive sell-off of, um, of property management companies. Property management firms are selling uh, you know, the, their doors to larger private, uh, privately held uh, companies and now some bit larger publicly held companies in this space because their margins are so thin. And they're saying, wow, my construction division is doing 20% margins and my property management side is doing 5% margins. So I'm finding low margin businesses that I can aggregate and actually make more money on. And these are the three areas of deal flow for private equity for me today. So Eddie, where do we find these deals? I mean, uh, is it a website or is it business brokers or how do you find yeah. each one of these? A large majority of these are coming through business brokers. And the, the best part about business brokers are they're not like real estate agents. They actually play both sides of the fence, right? Like, and they don't get paid unless the business sells. So it's actually, um, I find it to be advantageous to be a buyer working with the business broker rather than a seller. Um, when I sell my business, I never go through a business broker. I actually use an M&A firm and I market, I market it myself directly to the private equity firms. However, when I'm buying business, I use business brokers all the time. Um, and there are tons of websites. If you just Google searched um, uh, businesses for sale, uh, business brokerage firms, uh, businesses for sale in my area, you'll see literally dozens and dozens of sites that now have uh, assets listed on it. Uh, yesterday, for instance, I was looking at a site that's specifically here to Florida, and there were uh, four pool companies that were um, ready to sell, um, selling for pennies on the dollar based on their uh, EBITDA. Um, I saw uh, four or five electrical companies. Um, I saw a bunch of tanning salons. Like I'm talking about these easy, like these businesses that um, you can easily get into for for very low cost. Um, and so I'm finding a lot of my business deals on on um, on these sites, but then also because I've bought so many businesses, I have so many that just naturally come to me. I have some, you know, it's like my name is top of um, is top of mind when it comes to this. So many people are like, oh, if you if you have a business, then call Eddie. So I've got more deal flow than I could ever um, I could ever use. We're we're probably underwriting or looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to ten business acquisitions a week. 
Um, whereas I'm probably looking at less than one multifamily acquisition a week right now. Um, so it just shows you that how active I am in this space. There's really four major strategies for acquisition. And for me, I always start with um, equity, no cash. Now, the reason that I do this is because I want, usually if the, if the business is distressed, let me give you a, a really quick tip. I don't buy distressed product businesses or distressed service businesses. What I don't want to overcome is this mountain of negativity online, you know, Google reviews, so on and so forth. What I'm typically looking for is distressed cash businesses or distressed people businesses. I can solve the cash problem pretty easily. Um, and, and usually, you know, it's not about adding more cash to the pile. It's about um, looking at their business from a, um, a efficiency standpoint and making the decisions that they were not capable of making. A lot of these small businesses, they're just not great operators. And you walk in and you see 20 to 30% of waste right off the bat, even a company that's only doing a million or $2 million. I see waste uh, at a very, very high level. And then also, uh, typically the owner, the founder is taking a very large salary and you're removing that salary uh, from, from the business as well. You're relieving it of that stress and typically taking about half of what the, the um, you know, half to three quarters of whatever you're paying the, um, the previous owner who's running that business uh, to now, uh, to now um, employ a manager and that manager is now running that business. And then we incentivize them for growth and profitability and so on and so forth. But equity, no cash. So what I do a lot of is I go in and I say, hey, I'd love to buy your business. Um, and I am going to take and I sell the vision we're going to take their business. And what I do is I say, what I'd like to do is I'd like for you to stay as an equity owner with a long-term payout, and I'll pay you out over time, but I have no cash uh, off the table. And I'll show you a, a case study of how I did this here in just a few minutes, um, and where I had a little bit of cash, but I used equity to kind of incentivize the sale. That's my favorite type because what I like doing is, is saying to them, instead of me putting cash in your pocket, what I'm going to do is actually put cash in the business to infuse it for growth. And then you're going to be the benefactor of this growth. So take the ride with me versus take your cash off the table. Um, what I find is that especially um, for those that have already run their course in their business, they've already got an exit plan anyways. And so for them to walk away from this business with a potential of bigger upside um, and potentially longer uh, payout um, is, is very enticing to them. The second thing I do is if they're not willing to do something like that is I, I have them finance the business for me, right? So um, what I do is I create a seller note and um, we uh, structure it in a way that we give them an advantageous um, um, interest rate uh, over time, sometimes four to six years. And I buy this business over time so that what I'm doing is I'm allowing the profitability of the business uh, to, um, to essentially pay that note off over time. Uh, this would be the second strategy I always take because again, it takes very little cash to purchase the business. I might be putting down 5% or whatever it is um, and then having them finance it uh, for me so that I'm essentially, uh, and, and then the other thing too is because it becomes a debt vehicle then the profitability of that company, I don't have to worry about it kicking off a bunch of cash uh, or creating tax liabilities. Now that tax liability is being kind of extinguished by this debt and it allows me to play inside of that space as well for a little while. 
The third way is SBA loans. SBA loans are fairly easy to get on acquisitions. Um, if you have decent credit or decent track record, uh, going and getting an SBA loan, you just have a little bit longer runway. You might need uh, 60 to 90 days to actually make the acquisition with an SBA loan. But the SBA is very, very aggressive right now in lending to those who are going to acquire a business that potentially could go out of business or um, have uh, uh, you know some sort of a sunset, right? Like a baby boomer who wants to retire and walk away. Um, the SBA is very, very um, aggressive in getting money out. And there's multiple different SBA programs. Um, and you can go to the SBA website and look at all the programs for, for business acquisition loans. This would not, it's, it's way harder to get um, capital from the SBA if you have an active business. However, if you're going to buy a business, the SBA is very, very aggressive in lending. And then fourthly, banks. I think one, one thing that people miss, and you know, obviously I grew up in the banking industry, is that banks uh, try to diversify their lending portfolio. And, and we all know there's really only about three ways that banks make money. And the largest way they make money is deploying capital. Um, and they uh, always rate um, private equity as more risky, but higher return. And so what they're typically doing is, is trying to deploy 10 to 20% of their lendable capital into some sort of a private equity structure, uh, whether it's lines of credit for businesses or whatever. And so I do on occasion use a conventional bank, um, usually when the company I'm buying is in a good cash position. Um, if they're in a good cash position, like for instance, they have a bunch of accounts receivables that I can uh, leverage or whatever, then I might go to a conventional bank. So these are there's four ways that you can really acquire these companies. Um, without just using cash out of pocket. I think most people think, oh, how do I, I'd love to buy a company, but I don't really know how to do that. And I don't really want to spend a lot of cash to do it. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.